I was um, musing. I had totally forgotten that um, Mia Farrow was uh, married to Frank Sinatra yeah. at one point. I had completely let that slip my memory. I think that must have been his third wife? Maybe. He married her in like 1966 and divorced her in late 1967. Yeah. And had uh, his lawyers just send her the notice <laughs> while she was on set uh, on the first film we're going to talk about today. Um, and I could, I've heard all kinds of rumors, but I think the one that seems the most credible regarding Frank Sinatra's point of view is that um, he had heard that she was doing things like um, nude scenes, etc., And that was like he wasn't going to have that at all. Really? Yeah. It wasn't classy. Well, not a classy broad, dude. You know, it's like it's that sort of rat pack mentality, which is like, um, if, if you're if they're coming up from the Vegas floor to my room, sure. But like my wife, do you kiss your mother with that mouth? You know. Um, and then it was like it's his third wife, Barbara. I think was a, a showgirl or something. And that was the, that's the one that lasted like I don't know twenty five years or something. Who's number two? tremendous woman well there was nancy and that was nancy sinatra's mother nancy i think that was his first and mia farrow might have been his second but it's not about frank sinatra it's about mia farrow who was i think i guess i should know more about this but a bit plucked out of uh, out of obscurity because i the, the place i first knew mia farrow i mean really for a very long time is as a sort of like very competent actress in woody allen films right of course but, but, you know, she had sort of like in those films uh, for, with Broadway Danny Rose as an exception where she plays this fucking great um, New Jersey hooker. But all the other films um, of Woody Allen's, she's kind of a dowdy, like, no, I don't know, you know, hand-wringing um, woman. And um, so, you know, I had seen Rosemary's Baby when I was a kid. And at my friend the Corn's house, and I think it was a situation where like the parents were covering my eyes and ears for a film that was already edit, already edited to total obscurity for like the late night TV show, yeah. or, or something like that. Um, but so I didn't really know the early um, uh, uh, Mia Farrow. Plus, this is the, well, okay, sorry. So the first film we're talking about is 1968. Rosemary's. Rosemary's Baby. You're a little low all of a sudden. You're a little muddy, sir. A little Rosemary's Baby. Don't quit screaming at me, Tom. Yeah, yeah, Rosemary's Baby. I think, no, it tricked me. Did she start off, I think she was originally a model or something like that, and then she kind of got, yeah, she got pulled into acting, more or less. Yeah, she's got that whole thing, too, with the, I mean, she had the pixie haircut later on. I guess halfway through was the Twiggy. I was going to say the Twiggy thing, right? So it's like, yeah, there's that, and she's got the whole sort of lollipop you know, kind of weird neck, big head, tiny body. Um, just there, everything about the young Mia Farrow is like, a, 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 well, it's almost like she's totally de- devolved. I might just be biased, but it's like, not only was she kind of striking in a very specific way, like that kind of pixie way. Yeah. But she had a very, very strong and interesting personality. 
Yeah, and it came through. Like she, she had that quality of, of a personality that sort of came through. You know, acting is one thing or another, but but again, like you know, she she commanded a camera to a certain. There was a something. There's an indefinable something about her that commanded a camera. Sure. Yeah, it is. I'm going to be totally honest. I'm not from. I've never been really. I'm like you. I'm totally sort of sheltered from the Mia Farrow experience. I knew her exactly as you knew her. Um, but I, but except with one exception, which was for, uh, I, I'd seen bits and pieces of a, of a horribly edited Rosemary's Baby. Right. And she, like, it, it, and it had been so edited that there was none of her actual talent came through and she looked horrible. I was like, how the fuck? I never, I never got Frank Sinatra. Like, wait, it, wait, made, it made zero sense to me. Wait, she until, looked horrible? Until I rewatched Rosemary's Baby. You said she looked horrible? Yeah, she looks terrible. Like half of this movie, like when she's like when she's sick and everything oh, like that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, dude, when she's you know when she's pregnant, she looks like oh god, this poor woman. And then uh, so I never understood like the Frank Sinatra connection until like I, until this rewatching of Rosemary's Baby, and I'm like, oh, she's a striking woman. Oh, that's funny that you put it that way because I never understood why she'd be married to Frank Sinatra, who I like, but it's like, what is a 20 year old interested <laughs> in Frank Sinatra at that point for? He's just a big. You know, I remember the yeah, one young woman making terrible choices. Like that. <laughs> I guess so. This was the year, by the way, Frank Sinatra appeared on the something show, Joey Bishop or something. But he sang with the Fifth Dimension, um, up, up and away. He sang with them, and he wore a Nehru. I don't know if it's called a Nehru shirt, but it's like the jacket and uh, oh, the Nehru jacket, yeah. But it's a shirt, the shirt version of it, whatever that yeah. is. It's, and then uh, Love Beats, and he was bebop uh, boobin with uh, up, up and away to my beautiful balloon. I guess that was probably an attempt to woo the, the young Mia Farrow. But yeah, and so it's also, it's, I mean, there's lots of things that, that if we're going to jump into um, Rosemary's Baby after five minutes of my just sort of fucking blithering on, I apologize, everybody. It's it, blathering, Joseph. It's right. blithering, it's blathering, it's a little this, a <laughs> little that. Um, it's like you got, you got Mar- Mia Farrow, not on her film debut, but her first substantial role. Oh, um, very substantial, yeah. Uh, you have um, Roman Polanski. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah. In, in the film. Yeah, the, the, well, hold on, the, Roman Polanski. This is the film he did. The last film he did before the Manson thing. Right. Uh, yeah, and then you have John Cassavetes, who's like we, we've talked about him in the context of that movie Shadows from 1959, that experimental film he did in our New York That's episode. Um, and then it's like you have all these other fucking players who I don't know if I should even mention them now, but it's like, well, okay, someone we talked about recently, Miss. Well, like- like a week ago, two yeah. weeks, a couple of weeks, within Ms. the last couple of weeks, Ruth Gordon. Ms. Ruth Gordon. Um, yeah. uh, Ralph Bellamy, who, by the way, Ralph Bellamy, he has such a striking balance because he started out in those, like, Irene Dunn, Cary Grant movies where he's such a chucklehead. And, yeah. and he's always being taken advantage of because he's, he's, he reminds me of Kenneth Parcell from 30 Rock in those early <laughs> movies. And then, and then later on... It, starting in the 60s, like, like with uh, movies like uh, The Professionals with Burt Lancaster and Lee Marvin in this film, he is a creepy, creepy mm. something's in his basement dude. Yeah. He's there's, something about that, there's something about that nice guy thing in old age that kind of like is a little bit, a little, it's minorly off <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, sure. so so it's like okay, and then and then there's the history of the the set or the building itself, which is that's the Dakota, right? That's that's the building that Johnny Yoko lived in, and I think something bad happened there, if I'm yes. not mistaken. <laughs> I believe so. Yeah, it's right on the doorstep. Yeah, and I think it actually. I think that Dakota actually has a long fucking history of that of weird weird shit, which is probably why they like chose murders it. and things like that. So they yeah. were definitely playing that. They were they were definitely playing. 
what do I say? They're playing to that fucking well, <laughs> that It's also where Yoko learned to sing. Oh, no, she did. Oh, oh she God. never really did. Oh, that's true. That's a good point. So, so it's like you have all these these things in play, and and to me, I'm always suspicious of that. It's like that's just too much to be a good movie. They're gonna like make that do all the work. Nay, nay, I say, unless you're on the wrong uh, a different page. Well, which would be the wrong page for me. I think this is a great movie. I think it's very scary still. I was kind of surprised, as as we mentioned before. Like I, I've seen this before, like on Channel Two right. at midnight, and it was horribly edited. Yeah, it didn't make a hell of a lot of sense. But watching an actual, like the full version of this movie, it's yeah. an effectively scary movie. It <laughs> is because it's it's got it's it's I kind know of how it's going to end, and it still fucks me up. Yeah, and it's kind of it's kind of slow. It's plotting. It mm-hmm. not a lot of things happen. Everything's by sort of innuendo. Or implication, um, mm-hmm. people are, are kind of caricatures, and yet it's something about it works. John Cassavetes, who's like the actor's actor, right? The the sort of like one of those the method yeah. actor and everything else, um, underplays the role he has beautifully. Allows like Ruth yeah. Gordon and and her husband, I forget the, the guy's name, to play you know upplay their crazy role as neighbors. Right. Yeah. By the way, crazy, yeah. this this yeah. is a, a totally an in reference, and so I apologize to to our thirteen listeners. But um, Ruth Gordon in this movie, especially, reminds me. I don't know if you remember my old roommate Jackie from Queens. <laughs> Doesn't yeah. As there was yeah. a, a kind of a passing, you know, resemblance between the two. Yeah, like like a like a, a, a New York broad in the truest sense. Of the I word. guess. I guess. Yeah. So it's like. The best. So, I mean, look, I'm going to start with the, the one thing I have against the film, and that's its Friends TV show-like premise. And this drives me crazy about a lot of movies that are set in New York and San Francisco. But it's like, wait, let me get this straight. Do you know where I'm going already? Yeah, I, I think I do. But go ahead. Let me get this straight, John Cassavetes. You're a sometimes actor on commercials. Your wife doesn't work. Sure, move right into this penthouse in the, in the Dakota in New York City. It's it's like what the fuck you know I'm sure I, I, have, a, I have a slightly I, I did not know where you were going with that because I have a slightly different criticism yeah. based on the big city theme as well which is hey uh, yeah my neighbors come on over we're going to be making pie today like that fucking doesn't happen where does that happen in New York that happens in New York I think you're wrong oh about that. please everyone's too busy it's a city so money, nice they friend. named it twice what it's a city so nice they named it twice. Yes, yeah. That's, the city is nice. The people in it are... You big. know, I, I really don't speak from any authority. I think in the last 20 years that you could say that about New York, that it has been very friendly. Um, I know in the 80s, it was a... 70s and 80s was a nightmare, and this is 1968, so it could well be that you're right about that, um, that it's ridiculous. Or it could be a class issue, like... If you live in the Dakota, you might see your neighbors. I, I don't know. Then again, one of them's an actor. Like, how the fuck does that happen? I'm, uh, it, it all kind of plays into itself to a certain extent. Yeah, there are some sort of parody issues here, no doubt about it. But having said but, that, go you're ahead. right. So, like many movies, sometimes it's you know, the, the, if you if you can buy into the premise, you put away that suspension of disbelief. You buy into their premise and you go into that world. Yeah, this is a world worth going to. It's fucking scary. Dude. Yeah, it is scary because she. Um, you know, he's the actor. He's off. She's she's decorating the apartment. There's a sort of um, uh, little threats of having a child at some point. And then he decides that he's going to sort of like submit. There's always a funny thing in like television shows and movies in the past. You know what, honey? We can have a baby. I'll give you my cum, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And it's like, 
Um, oh, by the way, lots of cool nude scenes with the two of them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like I said, yeah, she's, uh, she, yeah, I could see why Frank, you know, ditched that, bro. An early um, suicide, um, some sort of smatterings of like a, or, or, or um, implication of like a, a, a totem that has some evil, you know, spirit in it or something. Um, but the, na- right. the it starts off with a sort of irritation, and it's like here's oh I know the word I was looking for. It's very Hitchcock this movie. It's paced a lot like a Hitchcock movie. It's sort of like you meet these neighbors, then they become an irritation. Then it, it's it's like like the growing irritation of people of characters, and and it's sort of like the Ruth Gordon and her husband, who who live next door, they are an irritation, but they're mostly an irritation to to Mia Farrow. And it's and so that is the other Hitchcock thing, the person who won't be believed. The husband's like, What are you talking yeah. about? you know? You see, that's the big part of it too. It's sort of a gaslighting situation yeah. without like yeah, yeah. 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 Every, everybody pretending normalcy in an incredibly abnormal situation. Uh, and just the one woman who's going crazy who thinks she might be going crazy because of it. Yeah. And speaking of Hitchcock and Gaslight and probably more specifically a movie like Notorious, it's the um you know, Hitchcock does this too, that like somebody's getting ill, but over a period of time. So it's like, it's not going to happen in a, in a, like, what, what do you call those little jump shots they do in horror movies now where it's like, you know, they're coming, they, they've become so standard that they're not even scary anymore. Like the, like someone's around the corner or like someone closes the refrigerator door and there's a face waiting there behind. Um, there's none of that rather than somebody getting slowly sick. And, and it's part of, part of the scariness of psychology is believing or her being believed. Go ahead. Sorry. No, it's dread. It's the use of it's the use of the concept of dread. It's dread as opposed to, as opposed to like an immediate visceral fear thing. Yeah, which is jump take and all that kind of stuff. This yeah. this plays to like a growing sense of dread as this thing progresses, which yeah. is how it being slow kind of plays becomes part of its strength. Really, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Thank you for naming it. It's it's a great study in dread, and so yeah. I, I think the way. It could have been overdone in so many ways. Polanski could have, you know, done all kinds of weird angles and everything else. But it contains itself, like eighty percent of the film, in this uh, floor of this building between the two apartments. Um, when it's outside, it's still claustrophobic. You know, somebody is going into a small office or a telephone booth or something like that. Claustrophobic in the context of New York City, which is and is not claustrophobic in some ways, right? Uh, sorry. Um, yeah, and then and then of course the the yeah the baby itself, right? Which is the sort of the centerpiece of the the, the horror show. Right. It it's, this, that's the great thing about this movie is that it's not playing to any of sort. It's not playing real well. It's it's not playing to tropes and has as a result sort of become a trope in itself. Yeah, but it's not, it's not playing to. Uh, it doesn't. It's no. There's no easy answers in this movie. Yeah, it I, looks normal. Like like it's shot like it's shot to be normal because they're trying to present present a normal world to Mia Farrow's character in it. And it just sort of builds from there and has that ending that is, I don't know, did you find, I find the ending strangely believable. What about you? I don't know whether believable is the word or not, but it's one of those movies where it, it was ripe for the internet to come along, you know, 20 years later or whatever, and, and create all kinds of, wait, 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 wait. In that one scene, that guy the Japanese guy who's who made the camera motion represents and like things that represent things. In some ways, the, the film that this reminds me most of is The Shiny. It has a okay. lot of the same sort of like not only claustrophobia in a big building, but like this idea that that 
the more you watch it, the more there are clues and Easter eggs, not Easter eggs, no, no, clues to be sort of picked up on to get different sort of layers. I was listening to a podcast just this morning and, and the, the, the podcast host was complaining about films that um, he was talking about tropes in films and he was saying, look, just because you're a character in a film, characters in film presumably live in the real world and themselves, they themselves have seen films. So don't, he was saying, like, so don't give me another film where somebody's been given medication and they cheek it. I've had enough of that. But then, and then he said, but I guess Rosemary's Baby, Rosemary's Baby's let off the hook because it was the first one I ever remember. And it's like, yeah, Rosemary's Baby probably has a half dozen things that are, feel like tropes now, but are actually sort of inventive. I'd like to go check. I wonder about this. How many times has Rosemary's Baby been referenced by The Simpsons? That's enough. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, I want to say at least two that I can think of. Yeah. So Cassavetes, um, this was a year after Cassavetes did um, his fucking greatest role, of course, as Franco in uh, The Dirty Dozen. Um, this is Mia Farrow sort of like, I think, really captivating the screen. I mean, she, she clearly is the star of this movie, despite all these, these oh, yeah. famous names being in there. Bell, uh, Ralph Bellamy as the sort of like replacement doctor is. Oh. There's a yeah. scene where she's betrayed by her original doctor, and it just feels when the original doctor. Can you hear me? When yeah, the, yeah. when the original doctor opens the door and Ralph Bellamy, the, the replacement doctor, steps through, you're just like, ah, oh, fuck you, everybody. You are so on her side. She is she is really the protagonist extraordinaire of this of this movie. Anyway, can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, I got you. So, uh, oh, it's just the yeah, normal. Uh, yeah, it's well, a normal it's reaction. You're just bored. Mia surrounded by really strong actors who are playing caricatures and pulling them off, but Mia still comes through as the star in this film. For sure. Yeah, no question. And of course, it has a great little little creepy soundtrack. And yeah, there's almost nothing. I, I don't know why this. Or I guess it is still considered in the, like the top ten. This to me is better than The Exorcist for sure. I never really understood how the Exorcist got the, got the play it did. I guess it was just because it was fresh and new at the time. But it came like had a little girl saying, "Eat my pussy." I, you know, I guess. Think. I guess. Yeah. So, so in that sense, it was shocking. But then again, so so like I know I've read a couple of essays by Stephen King. Let's just bring him out here. Uh, he's talked about the difference. There's there's horror, there's dread, and then there's like the sh then there's the shocker, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And, most you know most lower sort of lower uh, forms of sort of horror stay in stay in the horror slash shocker area. And don't, okay. don't go too far from there. But it's it's, the, it's when you get into dread that that's that's it's kind of the higher form of the, it's kind of the higher up form of the art. And this and Rosemary's Baby sticks in that fucking zone. Never leaves that zone. Well, it's also like I think Stephen King when he is good. I mean, I. I I don't want to be one of these hacks who's like he's. Ugh. I think sometimes he can feel a little stale to me, but but he can also sure. obviously be very good when he's at his best. Stephen King combines dread with the absurd. It's yeah, like, like yeah, yeah. you know the guy who keeps losing weight. Like that would never pass like an NBC pitch session for a movie or something. Like wait, he loses weight. Continue. That's it. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but yeah, yeah. You, know, you can imbue that with dread, and I think that happens here. It's like you know the idea that you're giving birth to. Well, I don't want to give it away. But yeah, no, no. no. Yeah. So, yeah. Go do that, Joe. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, so we love that movie. Now, are you ready to move on? Or you have more? 
yeah, let's just let's just say total recommend. Go watch for if you haven't seen Rosemary's Baby, it's genuinely a classic and it belongs in that category. I'm gonna give an evil recommend to our next movie, which is the next year, 1969. A movie I'd never heard of until two weeks ago. Free on YouTube, good print, 1969's John and Mary, starring um, Dustin, Dustin Hoffman. Hoffman. And Mia Farrow, and with a, a small role by Mr. Um, Cleavon Little. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> oh, you and... Too, fuck you, I wanted to bring that one out. Oh, well, let me give you the next one. Who else? We're talking about literally, like, maybe two lines in the whole movie. And who else? Who's a, who else is a small part that's amazing in this movie? Mm, Tom? What? Who? Miss Ty- that part. Miss Tyne Daly from Cagney and Lacey as the roommate. Oh, is that her? That's Miss Tyne. I saw the name and I recognized it, but I couldn't place it. Oh, okay. You're 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 one of your one of your great loves, Joseph. Um, it is actually one of my great loves. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um. All right. So John and Mary. I think it's a movie. She's on a roll in terms of movies that are ahead of their time. Ahead of their time. Really? I think it's more like okay. I, I'm going to disagree with you on the ahead of their time element. I think it's a good movie. Uh, I think it's sort of of its time. Much more. I mean, like if we're, we're talking about like late 60s early 70s you know through mid 70s there was a time when th- there were movies that came out uh that were sort of adult looks at relationships right now we don't have that like now we have fucking rom-coms and that's replaced the entire genre oh i don't think we that's true. like the way we were we're talking about uh what's the one uh, Hold on, I just brought it up. There's this movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There's a bunch. There, there's carnal a... Knowledge. Like, we did Carnal Knowledge. These are all movies yeah. sort of of a type, which are adult dissections of relationships. Yeah, I don't think that's gone. I think you're wrong about that. But I do think it is happening at this time. I was mentioning to someone else, um, it reminded me, the same year, I think, 1969, they did an adaptation of um, Philip Roth's Goodbye Columbus with Ali McGraw and Richard mm-hmm. Benjamin. And it's very, like, sexually... You know, well, just talking about sex, just talking about sex as a sort of pleasurable activity, gasp, uh, between single people. Um, I think you can still find films like The Ice Storm with Sigourney Weaver and um, Kevin Kline. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are films like that, but I think they've always been in this place where they're not the, necessarily the most popular films because people are idiots. Yeah, this, I mean, yeah. Well, okay, so definitely, I mean, I guess this would have been art house back then, too. But the, but what we're talking about now is like, uh, you know, uh, Tadpole or something like that. That would be, a, again, a, very much an art house movie today. And, and, and what's referencing something from 97. And I just missed, you kind of blurred in the, the Zoom. And what was it back then? Oh, it's just, I, I guess it was probably art house movies back then. Oh, I see, yeah. Now, somehow I think of it as being more mainstream, but... In reality, it probably was straight art. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm in no position to argue with you. I just, I don't want to... Um, never you, yeah, no. You may be right, but I, I just think um, I also don't want to um, think so nostalgically about these things that it seems like they captured this moment in this four-year period, and it's like, you know, I, it, it can, it's sort of like every once in a while I have to catch myself, and I'll, I'll see a movie that has, like, a, a modern movie that has, like, corny dialogue and I'm like that's corny dialogue and then I think like well like every fucking classic movie I love is full of corny dialogue that's kind of what I love about them all right sorry so so it's really about um two it it's it starts with this premise of two people who meet in a bar in New York Dustin Hoffman and Mia Farrow and get on with each other and he makes his moves and they end up sleeping together and and she crashes out of his apartment and then it's sort of like it kind of goes back and forth. But it goes. It uses a lot of things that shouldn't work in the movie. It uses a lot of flashback. 
huge internal dialogue. And the, the voiceover. Yeah, which yeah. is like, but it's the way they use voiceover is so fucking good here because it's like um, there's a lot of dramatic irony. They succumb to that temptation, but it's also like to understand what their motivations are is so fucking interesting. You know, Dustin Hoffman, yeah. who appears to be, uh, you know, in comparison to his like fucking um, jock fucking frat guy friend, a, a decent dude, nonetheless really thinks he has like um, smoothed his way into something here and he's got to walk yeah. a, straight, a straight line because j now she's going to think I'm o it's open season for marriage or something. Yeah, she's going to trap me into this. It, it's funny because it, it, because it also does the same thing for her, right? It uses that interior monologue it, 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 in voiceover to, to show them like each trying to work their like trying to each one thinking they've figured out the dynamic that the other person is playing on them. And then of course they're playing that dynamic on them. And so, and so, so yeah, it's sort of like, it kind of eats its own tail in a little sense. It's really kind of, it's really kind of beautifully done. Initially, I, as you said, it shouldn't work, but it works really well in this. Initially through the voiceover and combination of everything, she seems a lot smarter than he. Um, but I like that the film takes a turn where she's not always that smart. You know, she says things and the, the internal dialogue from her is just like, nope. Like, that was the wrong thing to say, or, oh, shit, why did I say that that one thing? Um, I can't, this has happened to me a couple of times where um, I, I've had that the, the sort of the hookup experience and then talk to a woman afterwards and and sort of like, yeah, I really roped you in, and, and, and had the woman say like, oh, no, no, I was just horny. You could have been anybody. I'm like, no! How, how deflating! And this movie does it in, like, 1969. Of course, immediately afterwards, it was anybody, so, yeah. Right, yeah, totally. But it's sort of like she she questions like because he's stu he's stuck on that sort of like that r bullshit false dichotomy, which is sort of like I'm glad I roped you in, but like what's wrong with you? Since you are you a woman who gets roped in a lot, and she's sort of you like, a, and she just sort of stops and like, well, well, I don't know. What do you think about that? Your own question there, like what what's behind it? And he's sort of like stuck on it. You know, he doesn't know, know quite what to do, and at the same time. He is smart enough to justifiably see little moments where she is jealous, where where what he's thinking is not one hundred percent fiction either. Yeah, and also this movie does another thing, which is it heavily relies on flashbacks yep. to sort of give you the context of where they're coming from in a lot of ways. Yeah, you know, like she's you know she was in a relationship with an older man who was married and was going to leave his wife and never did blah blah, right. and she had and he had a. Oh, uh, this woman basically just barged into his life and made herself a part of it without really his consent or the buy-in, and so they so they both have these demons that are chasing them around, the, chasing around in their heads. During this movie, it comes out in the dialogue, it comes out in these flashbacks, and it so the context is, is given for it. Normally, I'm not a fan of that kind of like leading you by the hand sort of movie making. No, I'm movie. not either. But this was really, really well done, and and. Uh... <laughs> It's such a sort of like untalked un about treasure. I, I'm, you know, Hoffman has a few of those that are just sort of never talked about. That's that's when you know you're a great actor when there's like five movies no one's ever heard of that are also amazing. Yeah, yeah. I like I like I like movies like this. These are the these are gems that people loved at the time that were art house movies, and that you 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 you, you just stumble into accidentally somehow. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And this is one. David and Lisa is another. Like little, like these really quiet little movies. Yeah, that are jewels. Yeah, yeah, I would say like you mentioned, Last Detail not long ago. It feels a little bit like that. Yeah, mm -hmm. Last Detail or yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know what else there is to say about it except that the art direction is of its time, which is to say there's some nostalgia to it, but it's, it, you know, it's probably the corniest thing in it is the art direction. It's, it's, it's also how hip they are. And, and again, the same thing, you know, as you, pointed, uh, as you pointed out, the Friends episode thing where the man has a, an apartment that's all out of, that's kind of all out of uh, it's, uh, what should be his ability. It's slightly more believable. But yeah, I, I, I agree with you there. Um, for sure. And there was something else I wanted to say about this movie. Um, oh, oh, I know what it is. It's, uh, you know, a lot of good movies suffer from this. Um, oh, let me just take you down a little side road here. Um, because I'm having to teach courses now, because of our current pandemic situation, I'm having to teach my courses online. I had scheduled for this next week to show um, Inherit the Wind to my critical thinking class. Can you hear me? Um, to my critical thinking class and um, I can't and so I was going to link I had to link Inherit the Wind but I couldn't link the original I had to link the 1998 George C. Scott Jack Lemmon oh. remake in what's, uh, no it's horrendous because Jack Lemmon just Jack Lemmon's his way through here's how bad it is when Jack Lemmon um, repeats the, the Clarence Darrow lines that got the laughs from the courtroom the director made the wise decision not even to have people in the courtroom laugh because he knew it wouldn't. It would seem absurd that people would find it funny. Uh, it's it's very poorly done. I kept it anyway because it's like, well, you can still watch it as a bad movie and, and do the exercise I had. And right. then, and then I said, if you want to rent the other one, do that, <laughs> please. But but um, a lot of movies like Inherit the Wind and Failsafe is another one had this intrusion, and it was like Failsafe had this intrusion at the very end, like of course none of this nuclear war stuff would actually happen in America, and and there was one originally with with uh, Inherit the Wind, like we mean no disrespect to religion, and I think this film, what I don't like about it is it cops out at the very last minute. Because Does it? it does a, a Harry Met Sally, and she comes back, and it's like let's let's fall in love. Oh, yeah, it's kind of, okay, well, you know, it has that, that well, I guess, The Graduate, another Dustin Hoffman thing, where, like, you know, he, he, he you know, pushes her away, and then he chases after her, are you talking about, like, that? Well, I think just, well, there's that, even that I don't mind, that you'd have second thoughts after doing that, even that I'll accept, it's that there's a sort of finality, like, they're going to move in together and make, give this a shot, and it's sort of like, oh, that's too far, you could have cut it off, like, two minutes ago. There's a movie. Yeah, and, and let's and let's back up and really and, and explain something. All of this movie is happening in one day, which is where which is where I'm going to agree with you on that. It's like even I don't care if you fucking nobody would do that that day. I don't think so. No. It's a little bit unbelievable. You're right. It is a little bit of a pat answer. It's not just, but my the, my reference to the other movies is that it's not just that it's unbelievable. It's like I feel like they are succumbing to this sort of mainstream morality. Which is like we're only going to get away with at the very end. They fall in love, right? Right, right, right. Actually, in love well, or whatever. Yeah, it would have been. You're right. It would have ended like five minutes earlier. It probably would have been a better movie. But I still think it's a pretty fucking good movie. Oh, yeah. Let me ask you this. Yeah, I think it's. I think Carl I, I Knowledge get... was maybe a better movie. What do you think? Well, I'm tempted to say Carl Carnal Knowledge was a better movie because. Um, our protagonist is has moments where he's more hateable, and so th that you're always tempted to sort of you know when there's like almost an anti-hero, to to sort of there's, default there's a little more chew on the on the bone there. Well, but but see I, that what I'm also acknowledging is <laughs> I, I understood what you were saying. I know. Yeah, me too. But still, what the fuck? I don't know. A little more chew on the bone, but um, 
but I think that it's it's kind of a temptation to feel like there's more chew on the bone, if you will. But I wonder if there actually is. So I, w- I don't know. This might be as good a movie as Carnal Knowledge, um, which I guess was more complex and never actually copped out. It actually because look, there's a morality in the end um, about Jack Nicholson and Carnal Knowledge. That yeah. and then morality is what a hateful person he's become. But I don't think people would disagree. Whereas in this one, it kind of lets down people who are like, oh, oh, finally a film that recognizes that, that this is how sex works in the dynamics and here are the truthful and, and frightening parts of it and, and you know, things we shouldn't be ashamed of, all this sort of stuff. And then it just sort of whammies you with this little moral fucking net at the end. It, you know what it does, Tom? It chews on the bone. It's Much a, like you, Joe. It's Much. what we call a bone chewer, if you will, Tommy. <laughs> anyway. Um, okay. Nothing ventured, nothing humiliated. <laughs> All righty, buddy. I understand that there's a website that uh, people should uh, check out. And that website is... Yeah, I'm uh, putting together my uh, website again, TomSmithComedy.com. So, yeah, go check that out for non-dates as I see it in the immediate future. Well, Tommy's always up for a Zoom performance of his... Um, <laughs> His comedy. Um, if you want to send us a comment at finleysonfilm at gmail.com. If you're able to give us a rate and review on iTunes, we'd certainly appreciate it. And if you want to support the arts during this difficult time, um, become a Patreon subscriber to Finley's on Film backslash Patreon, I guess. And you for a mere $5 a month. That's what? Two cups of coffee, Tom? You should know. Yeah, two cups of coffee. For the price of two cups of coffee a month, you can have access to the once or twice monthly additional Patreon episodes available only to subscribers, as well as access to the archive known as Finley's Fine Reserve. Yes, sir. Anything else, Tommy? Uh, no, I think that's it, boss. Good, uh, good talking to you, kiddo. Cow-bazam! That was going to be our new catchphrase. Cow-bazam. Wasn't it Cow-bazam? Yeah.